there's a huge link between air pollution and climate change, and it's fossil fuels. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. We're at COP26, and in this episode, we'll look at the link between climate change and air pollution and see what cities around the world are doing about both. We're trying to make London a net zero carbon city by 2030, and we know we have to go for every source of emissions that we can. Air pollution is the biggest environmental threat in London and I think in the world. We talked to big cities. Buenos Aires is, you know, a, a metropolitan area of 14.5 million inhabitants. It is huge. We have 9 million trips per day. And a small but very busy city-state. Singapore is slightly over 700 square kilometer and in there we pack more than 5.5 millions of people. We are very densely populated. Find out how London, Buenos Aires and Singapore are tackling road congestion, pollution and climate change. And if you're a city policymaker, we have a toolbox of policies to help you tackle global warming. I don't think we need to convince anybody today that we need to do something. I think people are really eager to find out what it is exactly they need to do. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating or a review and join us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy. And with this COP26 special looking at climate change, air pollution and cities. We have millions of Londoners who are exposed to illegal levels of air pollution. This is Radio Davos. Sounds from the streets of Glasgow as protesters call for climate justice. The idea that it's those who've caused climate change, the big emitters and richer countries, that should pay to solve it. Many environmental issues create injustices. Think of air pollution. It's often the poor who suffer the deadly impacts of that, even if they're not the ones causing the pollution coming from, for example, car exhaust pipes. On this episode of Radio Davos, we'll be talking to the people in charge of transport policy in three major world cities, Buenos Aires, London and Singapore, all of which are pioneers in getting to grips with road transport emissions and congestion. But first, in Glasgow, the World Economic Forum brought together 10 major companies to launch the Alliance for Clean Air. The companies from a wide range of sectors, including engineering, shipping, media and high tech, pledged to measure their air pollution footprints within 12 months and set ambitious targets to reduce their emissions. Clean Air is the new forefront of climate action. Jane Burston, head of the Clean Air Fund, an organisation that works for better air quality around the world, speaking at the launch of the Alliance for Clean Air alongside the 10 founding companies in it, Accenture, Bloomberg, Biogen, Google, GoTo, IKEA, Maersk, Mahindra Group, Siemens and Wipro. There's a huge link between air pollution and climate change. Um, and it's fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels obviously produces the greenhouse gases that are warming our planet. And it also is responsible for producing about two thirds of the air pollution that's harming our health. Harming our health to the extent that seven million people every year die because of air pollution. Seven million, that's 15% of all deaths. And many millions more people have their quality of life reduced because of illnesses that are either caused by air pollution or exacerbated by it. One of the things that we've also learned uh, more recently is that air pollution is incredibly bad for our economies as well as for climate change and our health. Jane Burston set out what it means to be a member of the Alliance for Clean Air. Action on air pollution at the same time as climate change is really needed. But actually, until now, 
corporate action has been scarce. And this is why we want to launch this business alliance today. These businesses really want to help clean the air for our climate, uh, for the health of people, and for the health of our economies. Alliance companies are making three major commitments. All of the businesses signed up to this Alliance for Clean Air will measure their air pollution footprint within the next 12 months, and then they'll commit to reduction targets. The second commitment is that all of the businesses in this alliance will champion the issue of tackling air pollution with all of their stakeholders. And they'll make sure that we talk about air pollution and climate change at the same time and tackle them together as well, not separately. And the final commitment is that they'll use their assets innovatively to help further this cause. Jane Burston of the Clean Air Fund speaking at COP26 at the launch of the Alliance for Clean Air. Find out more on our website, weform.org. To the first of our three cities pioneering action on road transport. London created a congestion charge in the early 2000s. That's a daily levy on vehicles entering the city centre. More recently, it's adopted an ultra-low emission zone, ULEZ or ULEZ, which imposes an additional charge on vehicles that don't meet certain standards on exhaust emissions. That zone has just been expanded out to cover much more than just the city centre. I asked Shirley Rodriguez, London's Deputy Mayor for Environment and Energy, why London has gone down that road. The reason why we have a, an ultra-low emission zone, and there is one in central London, because air pollution is the biggest environmental threat in London, and I think in the world, you know, recent uh, World Health Organization statistics uh, talked about that. So the, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, made it a major part of his manifesto for his first term. It was a real objective of him for him, and and it was a, a personal um, issue as well because he he has uh, he developed adult onset asthma because of the the pollution in London, um, and he made it uh, uh, as part of his second manifesto. So he was re-elected earlier this year to um, continue the the work on uh, air pollution, linking it uh, to climate change. As as uh, you know, he talks about the twin dangers of climate change and air pollution. Um, so, so that's why we've, we're focusing on it. You know, we have millions of Londoners who are um, exposed to illegal levels of air pollution in London. 200,000 uh, people exposed, um, you know, who've developed asthma um, and it's exacerbated by air pollution. Um, so, so that's why uh, we've really doubled down on it and, and actually, you know, started with transportation because that's the biggest contributor to, to, to those emissions. Um, uh, NO2, but also um, PM2.5, those very tiny particulates that are, that are insidious and, and, and really bad for us. So tell us how it works for anyone who's not experienced the ULEZ. What, what would happen if I got into my old diesel car and drove it into the middle of London? You drive in, you are captured, uh, a picture of your number plate, and somebody checks it against the um, database and is able to check whether um, using details that, that that's provided through that database about whether you have a compliant car. So it checks whether you're a Euro 4 petrol car or a Euro 6 diesel. If you are not, you know, those standards, then uh, you have to pay £12.50. And if you've not paid £12.50, you are then uh, given a fine. So how have, how have Londoners responded to that? Because that's what policymakers who will be listening to this will think, oh, might try that in my city. But there surely must be political opposition or not? Is there political support for it? Um, we have actually high levels of support for it. I mean, obviously, there are there are some people 
uh, who who are opposed to to any sort of uh, change, uh, whether it's a charge or or a cycling scheme or, or whatever. Um, but what the mayor did was really um, go go hard on telling people why it was important to bring these changes in. So we really looked at the health evidence. So we put out, you know, we've done a lot of research, we talked to people, we enlisted the help of communities, and we've seen a huge response from people. So whilst whilst we get a number of people, you know, a lot of people actually writing in and saying, oh, you know, we don't really want this central emission zone, can you not just delay it or, or not do it at all? All of those letters, you know, start with, you know, really, really applaud what you're trying to do to um, to to reduce air pollution. Really want you to do this, but could you think of a different way? Um, this ultra low emission zone has been, you know, has had such a dramatic impact on air pollution in central London. Has it? You can actually measure the difference it's already made. Yeah, we've measured the difference. You know, it's contributed to almost a fifty percent. I think it's about forty four percent reduction in. Uh, roadside NO2 concentrations in the zone and a 27% reduction uh, in PM 2.5 in just a couple of years. That is that is amazingly fast. Do you think people can actually feel this as they're walking down the street, breathing it in? I think they can. And, you know, and I think people have also felt, you know, I mean, obviously with the, the pandemic and sort of the number of cars not being driven uh, in London, I mean, unfortunately that, you know, we've seen those numbers jump back up again. Um, but, you know, people have have noticed it. And actually what we've done is um, we have a, a very sophisticated sort of monitoring uh, framework in London called Breathe London Monitors, where people can see in real time the, the, the impact. And we've seen a huge number of vehicles no longer driving in the zone. So it's having a traffic reduction impact as well. You know, those people are moving on to walking and cycling and using public transport. So this will also then potentially have a climate change impact because if you're reducing the number of cars driving around if those are running on fossil fuels currently as all these vehicles affected would be then you're reducing climate change emissions as well that's right i think we estimated around uh, a six percent uh, drop in carbon emissions uh you know which is significant so you know um, and obviously you know we're in a climate emergency the mayor's declared a climate emergency he's uh, brought forward his target so that we're trying to make london a net zero carbon city by 2030 and we know we have to go for every source of emissions that we can that that's within his ability to to influence and transportation is one of the biggest levers uh, alongside planning that that he has any words of advice then to anyone listening to this who maybe works in a local authority in a big city somewhere in the world, what what are the pitfalls, you know, what are the things they should avoid doing? What are the things they definitely should do to introduce a scheme like this? Well, I think, first of all, making sure that um, you make the case. So you have to bring people along with you. You can't, you know, just like everything, you can't uh, make a decision and then inflict it on uh, on somebody. You have to really understand what their concerns are, uh, try and design um, uh, the initiative to make sure that it, it meets the, the overarching objectives. So in this case, reducing uh, air pollution, but also understand that um, that in, in the main, people you know are supportive and, and want to do the right thing, but they just need to understand how does it work? Does it really reflect um, the circumstances and, and you know, can you help them make the change? You know, I remember going to a, a summit that we hosted with the World Health Organization. We had a, a father come in to talk about his his little girl who, who developed um, 
symptoms of an air pollution related disease. And, you know, one out of four weeks, I think, you know, she was not, you know, either she was in hospital or she was on the sofa, not able to participate in her, you know, playing with her, 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 her fellow peers and so on. And this was likely to carry on for, for a long time because, you know, these are lifelong illnesses. It's probably an easier message to communicate than climate change in some ways. That's uh, why the mayor talks about, you know, wanting to tackle the twin dangers of climate change and air pollution, because many of the solutions to tackling air pollution will also help with climate change. The Deputy Mayor of London, Shirley Rodriguez. Now, London's Ulez and the congestion charge are examples of demand management, adding a cost to driving into or around town in the hope of making people think twice about doing so. All cities have demand management, which can be as simple as charging people for parking. In Argentina, Juan Jose Mendez, the Deputy Mayor in charge of transport in Buenos Aires, put it like this. Usually the price represents the, ex- the negative externalities of that decision. If you go with your car to downtown area, you're going to congest. Congestion is going to create more wasting time for the whole community, which is a cost. And congestion is going to create more emissions, which is another cost. So when you put a price to those costs and transfer that price to the congestion pricing, what you have is better decisions, less congestion and less emissions and Obviously, a better city. That's demand management. But as well as wielding a stick, cities also use carrots to encourage certain behaviours. Buenos Aires, for example, is experimenting with the idea that rather than you going to wait for a bus at a bus station, which might be miles away, what if the bus could come to you? Join Joe Mendes again. In a neighbourhood, it used to be a slum, Barrio 31, in the Retiro area, very close to the city centre of the city of Buenos Aires, where, for example, working on the introduction of the first on-demand bus route in the city of Buenos Aires. We want to be now one of the first cities to shift those bus routes, those fixed bus routes into on-demand bus routes. And we are starting from this neighborhood that was recently uh, urbanized and integrated into the city, but with the idea of push, but with the idea of pushing uh, with this concept into the whole city and probably it's going to be one of our biggest technology challenges in the coming years. An on-demand bus route, how would that work? Well, for example, you know, uh, Buenos Aires City bus run 24 hours, seven days a week with the same bus route, with the same stops and with the same size of bus. You know, probably 3 a.m. in the morning, you, you, you take a bus in, in the city of Buenos Aires, it's going to be empty and you're going to wait. We will probably have to wait 30, 35 minutes for that bus to arrive to, to a stop. On-demand services is using technology to realize at some times of the days where demands are uh, lower or, or we have a small demand of, of transportation. For example, we can rearrange the bus stop instead of you moving to a bus stop that is five blocks away on on your street. You, you know, they make the bus to stop uh, in a in a spot very near from where you are, probably on your on your house on your front uh, door. We can do that during the night hours, for example, where the money is very low, and we can also shift. The size of the probably it's it's gonna be a car, 3 a.m. in the morning picking you up 
to take him from A to B instead of a big bus with 35 seats up to 60 passengers, which is the regular size of buses here in the city of Buenos Aires. You don't have to wait four or five blocks away from your home at 3 a.m. in the morning when, when probably the bus can pick you up 50 meters away from your home because it's in right in the next corner. We are testing in this neighborhood together with the World Bank. Our idea is to introduce it next year to, to test it with this community and start introducing this type of service at the beginning in underserved communities. They are lacking many public services like, you know, waters and sewers. And in that, in this case, in the case of mass transit, they are also lagging in, in mass transit infrastructure. So we have to close this gap. And how are we going to close this gap? With the solutions of the 20th centuries, of the solutions of the 21st centuries, based on technologies, based on the idea or, or, on the standards of, of sustainability, cost-efficient solutions. Deputy Mayor of Buenos Aires, Juan Jose Mendez. You're listening to Radio Davos. On each of our episodes from COP26, we've asked a company to give us a 60-second vision of climate change, a chance to say, in a nutshell, where they stand on climate change or where they see a solution. This time, it's Olivier Bloom, Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer at Schneider Electric. At Schneider Electric, we are optimistic about the climate transition. Our mission is to be the digital partner of our customer for efficiency and sustainability. For over 10 years, we have been helping many, many large corporations in the world through a very simple three-step journey to reduce CO2 emissions around strategizing, defining baseline and trajectory, digitizing, which is about tracking and monitoring consumption of energy and therefore CO2 emission, but also helping our customers to decarbonize thanks to electrification, more renewable, energy efficiency. And at the end of the day, we have seen a lot of very positive results. If all companies were acting now and deploying those solutions that have been implemented by many other companies in the world, I can tell you that the corporate world will be back on track to limit temperature and therefore be in line with the 1.5 degrees trajectory of the Paris Agreement. Olivier Bloom of Schneider Electric. This is Radio Davos where we're talking climate change, air pollution and cities. We've heard from London and Buenos Aires about how they are tackling congestion, pollution and climate emissions. Now, Singapore. Because if you think London pioneered the congestion charge, it started in 2003, think again. Singapore did it in the 1970s. We started this area licensing scheme in 1975. That was about 10 years after we gained independence and uh, we very quickly realized that with the increasing population, a lot of the traffic uh, is going into the city center, the central business district, and we got to do something about it. If not, uh, congestions were set in very quickly. And so that area licensing scheme was formed. In the 1970s, drivers had to pay physically at a toll gate. In the 1980s, that was switched to an electronic system, and that system is now being updated again. We shan. We are constantly looking at how technology could continue to help us. The system has been uh, with us for more than 20 years now. It is due for technology refresh. And as we look around, we think that it is time to leverage on global navigation system, uh, satellite systems, uh, to help do the collections. How, How do the public in Singapore feel about this system? So... At a system level, 
I think we have to continue to educate our people that uh, we are we're trying to manage a system such that uh, it is at least good for the commuters as well as overall for the countries and the economy. For many, many years now, our main focus is to provide many other good alternatives for people to move around. And so we spend a lot of uh, public funds, time, resources to get our public transport up. So with different modes of travel, we thought that then the paying a little bit for congestion uh, is a good way to state the different system benefits. That, that, that is more key than trying to convince the people that congestion charges uh, is good at a system level. So as we are speaking now, COP26 is happening in Glasgow. Road pricing is often about congestion. It's about getting people moving around the city. It can be about air quality, but of course there is also a climate change aspect as well. What impact do you think you're having there on climate change? Uh, first of all, land transport is the third largest uh, emitter uh, when we look at carbon emissions in Singapore, behind energy and industry. And, and so we uh, are keenly aware that uh, we have to do our part in climate change. We realize that that is very aligned to our larger goal of work cycle. Uh, but for longer journeys, our target is to have eight in 10 homes within five minutes walk uh, from MRT stations. And by having such comprehensive kind of uh, mass rapid transit system, we facilitate people to take our public transport. The second area that uh, we are also working on, especially for the last few years and, and moving forward is vehicle electrifications. We recognize that uh, electric, the full electric vehicles or battery electric vehicles have zero tailpipe emission. And if we look at our grid emissions, uh, we use uh, natural gas for electricity generation. Uh, but if we factor that in, the battery electric vehicles will only emit about half that of ICE vehicles. And so we think that uh, nudging people to adopt electric vehicles if they have to buy a new vehicle uh, is the way to go. So these are the two big areas that we will work on. And we believe that that is not only good for the environment, uh, it is also at a system level something useful as we address our national challenges of densely populated Singapore. We Shan, Chief Innovation and Transport Technology Officer at the Land Transport Authority of Singapore, the third of three cities that we've looked at on the way they're managing road transport. But what else can cities do on climate change? The World Economic Forum has produced a toolbox for policymakers on how their cities can become net zero and how they can cope with the impacts of climate change. Sally Sudworth is Global Head of Sustainability and Climate Change at consultancy Mott MacDonald.
there's been a, a toolbox of solutions that's been launched through the Net Zero Cities program for the World Economic Forum. There's over 200 case studies there. And the, the idea is that these are giving ideas for policymakers, for investors, for businesses. So they have an idea of where to start. I don't think we need to convince anybody today that we need to do something. I think people are really eager to find out what it is exactly they need to do. And so that toolbox is is very much has been set up to, to help people in that regard. And there are fantastic examples around the world now in Wellington, in New Zealand. They've been capturing carbon data since 2001. And so they're, they're able to use that data and information to create uh, a clear plan, uh, a really robust net zero plan, um, so they can guarantee to hit net zero by 2050. So they're, they're well on, on their course to doing that. In Leuven, in Belgium, they're not alone in this. In, they've, they've set up a non-profit partnership organization that brings together lots of expertise and ideas to, to break down these silos so that we have joined up investment across infrastructure. Bristol City Council in the UK have done something similar. Um, and then there are examples around adaptation. We've got Paris, New York, Copenhagen, all creating practical plans, frameworks for delivery so that all of the utilities, all of the businesses, all of those providing that infrastructure, they're all able to work towards the same goals. Nature-based solutions in both the, the urban and rural environments are really, really important and can provide this solution that we need in terms of creating greener, cleaner spaces to live. So it's the nature-based solutions that can help alleviate the extreme heating, can help to alleviate extreme flooding. It's recognised that woodland reduces temperature. So having that blended, integrated, natural and built environment, that the infrastructure that delivers that can, can really make tangible differences to, to the communities that live in our cities. In terms of air pollution, it can help alleviate that. In terms of wetland creation, that can provide the space for water that can help attenuate the effects of these extreme um, floods that we are experiencing. Sally Sudworth of Mott MacDonald. You can read more on the Net Zero Carbon Cities Initiative and its policy toolbox at www.weform.org slash nzcc slash toolbox. Thanks to Sally and to all our guests today. If you have comments or questions on anything you've heard, please join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with help from Alex Court and studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.